Welcome to the Speakeasy with Kate Wand, a safe space to discuss liberal ideas. I sat down and had a great conversation with Nick Hudson of Pandata, where we discussed progressivism, authoritarian personalities, living by your principles, as well as creativity and open science. Nick is a founder of Pandata, which is all about data analysis, open science, and the modicum of first do no harm. Hope you enjoy this discussion. It's such a battle. Ooh. Yeah. It's like there's so many people in this movement who claim to be um, really pro-liberty, but they have their own ath- authoritarian streak, right? That's kind of, been, the, they don't live by their principles. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right, um, and it reminds me of something that one of the ad, our advisors said the other day that you you mustn't think for a moment that there aren't people on the other side who are uh, mainly focused on control. Right. Hmm. Right. He said. He said to me, you know. The, the the drive to control is a fundamentally human thing. Yes. We're all doing it from the moment we yes. step out of the womb, you know, the moment we realize we can mm-hmm. yell or shout as a little child and somebody will do something for us, that becomes the objective function for the day, you know. And uh, well, we're, we're all trying to control in one way or another. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of a good point, and I think it's on different levels for some people. And um, you know, in your intimate relationships, it might be different than in your work relationships. But I also do believe that there is a spectrum for that, where there the people who tend to be most authoritarian tend to be that way everywhere, but it just doesn't always appear that way at yeah. first. And then once you actually start to observe their behavior and interact with them more then you get to see, okay, because I think people who like, I don't consider myself an authoritarian, I can be controlling sometimes. Like I recognize that in myself where I say, oh, but I can recognize it. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want to be like that. So let me try and figure yeah. out where that's coming from. I think that that's kind of yeah, you that take self-awareness and willingness to, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I, I often get the feeling that the reason I perceive all the people on our side of the equation to be more intelligent than the people on the other is because there's a recognition of limitation in the face of complexity in the face of, uh, you know, what the economists who understand the world call the information problem. We mm-hmm. are more humble in our aspirations for shaping society, culture, the world. And so that's a, a, a first intellectual leap that maybe the people on the other side of this haven't taken. Yes. I think that that's a very good point. I think like one of the goals that uh, Will and I have, and I think many people in this movement do, is to help yeah. shift the culture 
you know, through education, conversations, and that is going to take a long time. It's not something that, and it's not meant to impose on the culture, but rather to expose um, people to different kinds of ideas than the progressive mainstream uh, neo-Marxist ideas that, that are just propagated everywhere. But it's not about mm. trying to mm. nudge behavior itself. It's just about trying to present ideas that are different. Mm. So there's a fundamental difference there. Important distinction, yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between persuasion and nudging. Nudging for me has mm -hmm. become a, a, a an evil concept. You know, it's a manipulative concept. It's 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 linked closely to the idea of utilitarianism that we can do a calculation and work out what's good for society. And if there are people who don't agree with what's good for society, then we'll just nudge them into agreement. <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, yes. <clears throat> In fact, in fact, something that I've been thinking about, let me test this on you. I, I, I've had this feeling in recent weeks that there are many strands of these horrible ideas that are out there that all sort of fit together like a jigsaw puzzle in a way. Um, in, I mentioned economics just now, the whole modern monetary theory mayhem, you know, this absolute intellectual train smash is out there yeah. and being propagated. And if, that's actually something you can get censored for, is um, uh, criticizing MMT. The, really? Um, all of the pandemic-related the, the pandemic things. My, I, the other day I, did, I was interviewed and I, I quickly scribbled down some notes. I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. And I thought, let, let me just see how my list of lies is going. And I quickly wrote down and I had 15. So I said... To, it was on the, the AJ uh, Robinson show. Um, I said, look, I'm going to try and get, I'm going to try and squeeze these 15 lies out in uh, 15 minutes. And then we can talk about some real stuff. Um, and <laughs> I, it was one of the panda members said, you forgot this and this and this and this and this. So I've added them to my list. They're 20, they're 20 big lies. They all are big ones. Okay, so you've got MMT, oh. you've got the whole cluster of uh, pandemic-related nonsense. Then there's the yeah. whole field of critical theory, critical race theory, critical gender theory that's polluting our schools and, and the whole discourse in media, these ridiculous ideas that a person might know what it is like to be a member of the other gender and that that might lead to a whole bunch of conclusions in that personal, person's life, including the decision to you know, undergo all sorts of horrible procedures Surgeries with the blessing of parents yes. and society. Yeah. That whole cluster of endless terror. Uh, then, then there's the whole um, absolute malarkey around um, <clears throat> controlling the climate. Yeah. Yes. Before you've even gotten to the question of whether those models aren't a bit like Ferguson's models. Um, there's that yes. whole idea that you can sort of, you know, dial something up and down by whatever measure you care to mention and that that single univariate hubris. measure will be, yeah, complete hubris. And <clears throat> um, then there's a strange upturning of other important parts of the social order. Um, and this one has become increasingly prevalent to me as I watch closely what my children at school are being taught. But there's this general idea that sexualizing children is okay 
and uh, normalization of kind of pedophilic means. And I increasingly think that these horrific ideas are all uh, wayfarers. They're, they're traveling, fellow travelers of one another. That yes, it's not too difficult absolutely. to join the lines between the one bad idea and the other. They're, they're always one step away from each other. Epstein, you know, is on a plane with Bill Gates mm -hmm. a couple of times. Okay, so we've sewn that one up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> Schwab seems to think that it's a great idea for countries to borrow ridiculous amounts of money and that will we'll eventually forgive the debt in exchange for some kind of compliance and uh, universal basic income um, right. arrangement. They're, they're all kind of, they all sort of fit um, together and, and it's the same type of person, this person who goes in for the systemic analysis, the kind of idea that we can control society from a central place because we're so clever and this utilitarianism, the calculation that you would perform on a spreadsheet that will improve the world a great deal. They're all, they're all clustered together as a giant set of incredible intellectual fuck-ups. Yes. Yes. Well, it's it's looking at the world through the lens of I am God because there is no God, so mm. I can design the world in my image and also at the secular religion of science. So, you know, all of these yeah. people are also kind of like prophets for that secular religion and so all of those pillars of the religion, uh climate crisis, yeah. transgenderism, critical theory. And you're right about the pedophilia is just an extension of what is the next perversion of sexuality. And, and how much more yeah. can we kind of destroy society's fabric, destroy the family unit. Um, and then also I spoke with um, this, this young guy the other day, Harry Wade, who had gotten ripped out of the university in Canada for um, taking a principled stand. And what his theory was, was that the reason that pedophilia has been introduced and is and they're nudging people's behavior to be open to that is because if you change the age of consent for children in that way then you can also change the age of consent for voting and for medical interventions and then if you have children who can uh you know consent to sex who can vote and who can agree on whatever they like done to their body then essentially you have these young impressionable people who are able to uh, be the ones who vote for these kinds of uh, ideological mm. utopias that, you know, older, more educated, more knowledge and experienced people would not accept. Uh, absolutely. And I, I mean, there is really a, some kind of coordinated suppression going on around these things. The, the Maxwell case is on at the moment, right? And um, oh, I saw that it's not flash, being reported but I didn't anywhere. see. Yeah, yeah, it's a big story. Yeah, I mean, on. this is this, you know, and and when you get into the depths of it, it's it's really quite something. Um, there were all sorts of strange deals struck to um, give safe harbor to certain people who were involved, and they were quite broad and sweeping. So you get the feeling that they're trying to protect. Uh, not just one person, but some 
cluster of important individuals in this whole story. And it's a bit disturbing that you would have law enforcement and intelligence agencies and the courts all trying to hide something, trying to keep it from the public eye so that they can confine the damage to uh, a limited hangout kind of situation with Maxwell going down but not taking too many people along with her. Hmm. That's what it feels like. Well, it's consistent. That's what it looks like. It's consistent with everything else mm. that's been going on. It sounds like something very nefarious and criminal. And it's something that I imagine that we will look back on in a few decades. And, you know, if, if at least part of the truth comes out, um, most people will just be bewildered. You know, how could this have been going on right under my nose? when I was doing something so great yeah. and part of this greater good, and it was the best time of my life. <laughs> yeah. What, what's also interesting is how there are these big reveals that the, the Syrian chemical weapons story was bogus, that the Russiagate story was completely manufactured. Um, and if you look at the column in inches that were expended upon promoting those entirely bogus narratives by newspapers who would want you to regard them as like reliable sources of information, if you look at the column yes. inches they expended on promoting completely false concepts and their complete um, refusal or, or just neg negligence in even beginning to acknowledge that those things have now been exposed as false. They don't even attract a mention. Um, it's as if very large sections of history were completely false, are now known to be false, but they'd prefer to pretend that the, the false stuff was actually true. Well, he who controls the propaganda machine controls the truth in a sense. And this is where Orwell mm. does come in. I actually read the book in, in 2019, I believe. And so it was really fresh for me. And that's exactly what happened, right? Like the news would change every week and it would be Oceana uh, was at war and then the next week they weren't. And you just had to believe everything that was coming as it came, no matter how outrageous it was, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how much it contradicted what you heard last week. And um, yeah. one of the reasons I think that for this is it's a way of humiliating the citizens. It's a way of keeping them bound to their servitude. It's saying we are blatantly yeah. giving you these ridiculous stories and we're changing them weekly. And if you are not part of this with us, then you will be ostracized from society. So you better be a good little calf and you better stay in line with whatever outrageous yeah. lie we're going to tell you. Yeah, it's like, it's like the mask wearing. I mean, that, that, that acts as a kind of, I've spoken about it in the context of it being a reminder of the continuous presence of the so-called deadly virus. But it's also mm -hmm. a, a, an instrument of humiliation. That you have to walk around yes. like a rhino, UNESCO's rhino, you know. <laughs> um, 
Yes. This mount yes. on. You've got your you've got your rhino horn on, and you have to wear one. And you can right. you can wear one with a great deal of disgruntlement, or you can just go along and uh, be one of the people who shouts at the other others who have them riding below their noses or whatever. Um, so well, I, I, I've got it. I've gotten it down. Despite a universal mask mandate, I've gotten it down to like incredibly uh, short intervals of. Uh, um, wearing the thing in the first place or indeed covering my mouth and nose in the second. It, it's uh, it's something that I make quite a strong point of and I, I call people out and tease them and uh, try to make fun of the, the idea that a chain link fence would stop a handful of sand. <laughs> well, that's great. And that's actually uh, with uh, Ionescu, what ended up happening, right, was his own people heckled him. And, you know, by bringing humor yeah. into this kind of situation, you're actually able to um, expose the truth to the masses, like the little boy who points out that the emperor has no clothes. You know, these are all the ways that the court jesters who are able to point fingers yeah. and laugh are the ones who, in fact, uh, keep people's minds tethered to a sense of reality. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I was actually in a... Um, in a Starbucks the other day, um, because I was coming home from filming somewhere. And it was really funny because I haven't been there since they've gone fully woke. Uh, well, they were <laughs> already woke, but now they're far more woke. <laughs> but I really wanted Ooh. to have some egg bites and I wanted a coffee. And I said, I'm just going to go into the Starbucks. It's right here. And William was like, don't go in there. Like, I'm not even going to eat their egg bites. I don't want them anymore. They're too woke for me now. And I was like, well, this time I'm going to make an exception. So let's go in. Mm. And it was interesting because everybody there obviously was wearing a mask, but it was also that this was like in this specific place because Starbucks is so woke. It was different than going into like a Canadian tire hardware store with people wearing masks. It was not like a blue collar mm. sentiment or anything like that. It was really this kind of a little bit snotty. Um, and there was just this, this happiness, this zest about everybody kind of being in this so-called miserable place with their faces covered, but they were all quite happy and friendly with each other. And then of course I came in and just shattered that whole thing. And it was fun, I have to say. Um, and it was interesting to see how people <laughs> how people interacted with me. But uh, I just can't believe that we're here still. The, Sometimes what? I just marvel. What What was the aspect of you that did the shattering? Um, it was my the taboo of my naked face. Yeah, that's it. That's all. And carrying enough. my baby, who is yeah. also, yes, who also was unmasked, of course. Mm -hmm. But that was really interesting because one lady was so angry to see me, but she was so friendly with my baby, you know? So it was kind of funny because mm -hmm. it was like, well, there's still some slice of humanity that's left inside of you that is able to, mm -hmm. you know, come out to play. And that's um, something that Solzhenitsyn said. I, I was writing a piece for a script of a film that I'd like to do on the Hannah Arendt thing and totalitarianism and good and evil and all of that thing. And uh, Solzhenitsyn said, you have, even in the darkest of hearts, you will have that one, one little piece of good and vice versa. 
Yeah, I like that. I, I, I think that's part of being humble is to recognize that there is an aspect of yourself that you really wouldn't like if somebody shook you and uh, pointed it out very, yes. very well. Um, I think that's part of all of this. It's the people who who get into the megalomaniac, ego, egomaniacal positions that uh, who think that they know, you know, the solution to all the world's woes. Those people are dangerous. Beware of the the rich man with a plan for the planet. You know. Right, right, and I think as well that these rich men with plans for the planet are on the last strides, you know, they're kind of in the late August or even the winter of their life, some of them. And they've been yeah. trying to fight back against this um, decentralization that's just incurring, occurring naturally. And this is kind of yeah. like that last grasp, I think, at saying, well, we need to, um, before I die, this must be my legacy, this great reset, mm. or whatever else, the mm. other names that that are, um, are being used, yeah. like, Prince Charles has one so. as well, you know, the Terracotta. Yes, yes. Terracotta, so yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. terrible idea. The rights of the yeah. planet. Giving, giving inanimate objects the rights, rights over humans, you know. I mean, what a ridiculous idea. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I, I agree with that. It's... Um, it's, it's quite daunting in a way. I, I mean, if you look... Let's look at Amazon. Amazon is a failed company. The, the, the whole shopping story it- never made money. It was only when they began to sell their products to the government, their cloud services, the, that, that there was any cash flow anywhere in sight. So the corruption really? of the government by Amazon and the corruption of Amazon by the government were uh, required to make a financial profit out of Amazon. And I don't think that that qualifies as success. So I still think of it as a failed company, despite the fact that its owner yeah. is from time to time the wealthiest man in the world. Similarly well, with sounds um, like fascism. Tesla. Yeah, it is fascism. Mm-hmm. This is this, this un- unholy alliance between uh, inefficient and corrupt corporates and inept and corrupt governments. That is what fascism is. Um, it's, yes. I mean, it's a word I would use more often if it wasn't for the fact that Antifa had completely given the general member of the public a warped idea of what, of what fascism actually is. <laughs> right. Uh, they're anti-something they're, that isn't really rejection. fascism. <laughs> and yeah, yes, they're yes. actually behaving like fascists and being sponsored by fascists, but um, they're, they're, they're anti-fascist apparently. So, so people are confused as to what exactly a fascist is. And unless you've read the history of Italy, it's actually quite a hard concept to, to grasp. So, so th- that term is a bit neutralized for us. It's, it's kind of gone. We've got to use some other term. And totalitarianism, yeah, I think that's a good one. Authoritarianism doesn't work very well because there are too many people who, who like authority. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what term are we using yes totalitarianism what, what, is good yeah, I, 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 yeah a deadly ism there's um, a guy named matt kibbe who's a libertarian based out of washington and he uses the deadly yeah. isms 
So it doesn't really matter what they are, like what the flavor is. They're all deadly isms. But yes. totalitarianism would yes. be probably the most accurate, right? Because we have that mass formation, yeah. which is like the totalitarianism is led mm -hmm. by the uh, the zealousness of the people. They're so excited to be a part yeah. of this thing. Like, you know, if you mention anything to them that uh, that will actually try and bring them a little bit out of it, then they get very angry and they get very mm. defensive or they just actually tune out because it makes them feel good to be part of this greater good, so-called. Yeah. 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 There's a, a need to undo all the infantilism. And, and for me, part of the infantilism is the polarization. So the moment the moment you believe that mm -hmm. the other half are people who are up to do something evil um, then you're you're in an infantile position and I, I I had some great reminders of it the other day I was on a podcast cast with uh, some young people who would probably have called themselves people of the left I've always avoided the damn, the damn label. I, I I have great sympathy with some of the ideas from the left and great sympathy with some of the ideas from the right and regard both as complete idiots, you know. Um <laughs> I I kind of <clears throat> have have so the, the the reason the conversation was interesting is because I think the penny was starting to drop that it's it's you've got to change the language altogether. So, so this idea that there's this thing called a progressive, well, it's a, it's a very interesting occupation of, of semantic space because it suggests that the other people want what? Regressiveness? Right. Stasis? Mm -hmm. And nobody on the other side wants that. Everybody wants things to improve. Everything, everybody on the other side wants their neighbor to be better off and their family to be better off and their community to flourish and thrive. So the idea that there are some people who like progress and some people who don't, is just a stupid one in my opinion. I, I mean, you know, it's a completely separate story from conservatism versus which is the opposite of re uh, being revolutionary. You know, that, that's about the mm -hmm. pace of change and the scale of change. Do, do you have an intuition that, the world is complex and therefore you've got to be very careful about wholesale wide sweeping change because it might have unintended consequences. Well, that describes conservatism. Or do you think that there are obviously wrong things that I can change right now because I'm clever and I'm angry and then you're a revolutionary? And um, so the, the, the term progressivism floats in there as this rather... Uh, it's an anodyne, shallow kind of term, and I, I, I won't. It, I won't let anybody attach that term to their to themselves without first explaining to me what it means, and they're never able to do it. Well, I think that it actually comes from. I'm reading this book now, "The Culture of Narcissism," which was written in the '70s, and mm -hmm. I think that that's where the term progressivism began. And I've just gotten into the beginning of the book, but the author is basically describing how um, that generation was uh, becoming increasingly narcissistic. And this was just going to um, yeah. cause many societal problems. And many of the ones that he mentions in the first few pages of the book, anyhow, 
are things that we're seeing unfold now. And actually things like, um, trying to hold on to central authority and, um, society run by experts, technocracy, things like that. He was writing about in the seventies and that was tied in with progressivism somehow. And so it's yeah. interesting because all of the people again, who are like the men behind the curtain are the progressives. So I don't know, like progressivism, if the word means, um, trying to render the world exactly how you see fit in a way that doesn't make sense for most people. Uh, it's, it's radical. Like pro progressivism is radical yeah. to me. I don't, I don't see it being about progress. I see it about being something, a radical changing of the way that humans are. And it's inextricably linked, I think with, um, transhumanism, especially now, like it's about creating a, a, a a different kind of species, I think, is what progressivism actually is about. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think you're not too far off the mark at all, at all. It, it it's this idea that yeah, I'm so tired of explaining this to you, so I'm just going to coerce you into doing it, and then you will see that it's better. Mm -hmm. Um. And usually some pretty half-wit, you know, mid-ranked academics and some Johnny-come-lately politicians and a, a guy whose brown-nosing ability was sufficient to make him CEO of whatever corporation, you know. Um, yes. Yeah, those are the people, these dull, uncreative, uninspiring people who who have these ideas and are firmly firmly convinced of them. <laughs> They're not the innovators in society. And this is something that I spoke about with Harry Wade, because the student, uh, he's in an engineering program or he was, and he was kicked out of university and he was, you know, in this prestigious program and he was one of the very few in it. And he just took a stand and he sat in the classroom and said, no, I'm not going to leave. You know, I'm not going to show you my papers, but I'm not going to leave. I have a right to be here. I've paid my tuition and I would like to be educated. And anyways, this um, thing kind of went viral and now he finds himself in a very weird spot. So we ended up uh, speaking together this weekend. And what he said was that part of what he's seeing at university and in, the, and in that institution is that they like to remove all of the innovative minds and leave only the people who can just regurgitate dogma. So he said, yeah, if we continue down this people. path, mm -hmm. that's right. We'll no longer be seeing, you know, who, like, who do you want to be the architectures of society? Who do you want to be the architects in the, in the literal sense? Who do you want to build your bridges? Mm -hmm. Do you want it to be somebody who's well-versed mm -hmm. in critical race theory or someone who is the best person to build a bridge? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I, I, I can sense that. It was like that inside corporations as well. If you were prepared to spout the uh, critical theory tropes and memorize a couple of choice taglines for the institution, mm. you, could, you could go pretty far. Ask a few difficult questions and you'd quickly find yourself iced out of the room. Um, so that, that's right. 
those people add no value to the world. They add no value to themselves. They're shallow. They're, uh, they live meaningless lives. And that's terribly sad. Yes. Um, and uh, this is an, in, a, in a big way. A struggle between the creative people, the people who have um, a spirit, and the people who, who, who lack creative impulse and who are you know, spiritless, devoid of any sense of meaning and purpose. Um, this is very much what this story is about. So do you uh, remember reading this book by Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Yes. Have you ever read that? Yeah. So yes, I, I watched a video recently. <laughs> it's a great book. And um, the video was... <laughs> the video was actually about the first principle or the first habit. And uh, what Kobe yeah. expresses is that um, he came up with this idea when he was reading about a psychologist who had been tortured in a, a Nazi camp and, and they were sterilizing him, but he was trying to observe himself from the outside. And so what he ended up finding there was that he had the stimuli and then he had his response, which is kind of like what you're saying, what makes people, you know, I guess more like cattle. Um, mm -hmm. But in between mm -hmm. that space was the free will. So that's where mm -hmm. Steve Covey calls that being proactive rather than reactive. But it's basically mm -hmm. that you're able to um, appeal to your higher sense, your spirit, your soul, your conscience. And then you can make a decision based on that. And we don't do that all the time, but just having that conscientiousness. Mm. I must say, I, I battled to uh, get on Stephen Covey's wavelength as possibly because in, at, at some stage in my distant past, his, com his company was a, a client. Oh, okay. Uh, let's just say okay. that, and I heard you just, saying as I was speaking the, with her little leg that you were like he was terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let, let's just say that not too many of the seven habits were employed in that company. <laughs> well, that's how it often goes. This is what we were saying off camera yeah. or off recording earlier, right? Like many people yeah. don't actually live by their principles. It's rare. It's rare to find people. I find you're very principled. Like when we did this um, video for the 10 reasons you should not vaccinate children, I love that because you basically, like everybody in, in Panda just gave us complete trust. They were just like, okay, like, great. We're so glad you want to do this video. Just send it to us when you're done. Mm -hmm. And that was it. It was like, mm -hmm. we trust you to have local knowledge of, of what you know how to do. But it's really rare that people operate this way. So once you actually see the flip side of that, you realize how fortunate you are to be around people who um, live by their principles. Yeah, it, and, and <clears throat> it's also without articulating sometimes. Um, it's yes. not like they're these ironclad rules that we obey or processes that we obey there's a kind of general acceptance that look we're dealing with a very complex story so we'll know when the answer's okay when the article's okay mm -hmm. and also mm -hmm. you know when we put something out there and then somebody raises a hand and said oh wait a second did this did we really scrutinize this enough before we launched it in the public 
we're quick enough to pull it down and reassess it and give it another go. And and I think that reflects the spirit of the people in, in involved. You know, there's a the, the same the same willingness to contemplate complexity and the extraordinary um, potential to ordinary to to always improve on your explanations. That that kind of mindset, you know, ma- makes it easy. To, to be flexible in a, uh, in a procedural kind of way. You accept that both the conjecture and the criticism are going to come from strange corners or in, in, in different ways, and you need to be able to respond mm-hmm. to them and, and not to be too hung up about your, uh, what you said yesterday. Um, and it's a joy. Yes. It's it's a real joy. I mean, I I every Tuesday evening we have these open science meetings, and I love them. I really love them because it's bright, bright, bright minds. People who just love science, debating and arguing and discussing. And uh, so, like last week, we had Gert van der Bosch on. Okay, so he's got a yes. theory, and the the high level stuff we agree on. It's damn stupid to do mass vaccination with a leaky vaccine in the middle of a epidemic. Tick. Everybody gets that. There's nobody who doesn't disagree with that. That's obvious. Obvious. Mm-hmm. But the detail as to what he says is going to happen because we're doing this, oh boy. Nope. There's a lot of disagreement on that. In fact, I couldn't find too many people who agreed with him. But then this evening we have a yeah this evening we have a person who's deeply steeped in the world of uh, medical trials and uh, safety and efficacy and she's an exceptional biostatistician and she came on <laughs> and says you know I've been working a lot with Kate van der Bosch and then so then it started the whole thing all over again but wait a second Jessica. <laughs> 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 and I just love that. I, I just love that whole environment. You know, there's there's we there's a kind of there's an unwritten agreement about a skepticism about what the dark overlords are telling you. The the this mm-hmm. idea of science by narrative is they everybody there knows that that's just dead wrong. And Fauci, I am the science, or you know, follow the science. All of these terrible ideas are. Are universally acknowledged as being just the, the absolute arse end of intellectual endeavor. Um, but beyond that, everything's fair game. And that is the creative environment. That is where you make progress in ideas and generate and create new explanations for how the world works that have the potential to improve people's lives on your own. That's. That's really lovely. I'm sad that I missed that. Um, and um, this is this is such a great point because science, in fact, is extremely creative. It's all about having mm. an inquisitive nature, and people who tend to be scientists mm-hmm. for those reasons end up being the ones who we remember and and are written about in history books because they have a desire to understand something and they have a desire to prove themselves wrong as well. They don't want to prove yeah. themselves right. They're like, well, let me try and look at this and see it from every single aspect and just test it and test it and test it. 
and throw that one out and keep going. And so obviously what we're seeing now is not science, but it's a, a religious, um, um, how can I say, a secular religion called science. And so there's all of these doctrines that you must follow. And Fauci mm. is one of the high priests. He's kind of like the Pope of the COVID religion. Yeah. Along with Bill Gates. Yeah, Bill yeah, yeah. Gates might be the bishop. Yeah, he's more like the poster girl, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I like that better. There, I like that better. Yeah, there's, there's no he, – he's never said anything intelligent. <laughs> Nothing. It's all just vacuous words, you know. He, he doesn't say anything. But uh, I, if, if you think about the 2D great scientists, they all have this element of irreverence about them. So Richard Feynman, or in the COVID uh, world, Kerry Mullis. Hmm. There's this yes. intrinsic skepticism, irreverence. They don't take themselves or the world nearly seriously enough in a way. Uh, I, Albert Einstein was like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, John, uh, uh, sorry, I always forget how to say the name in American. Um, John von Neumann, um, and you know, uh, even outside of science, if if you look at people like my one of my heroes, Jakob Bernowski, uh, another name that I'm meant oh, yes. to pronounce, Bernowski, isn't it? But um, I think you've got it. These people all have a, a kind of uh, there's just this intrinsic pushback when everybody when everybody is sure about something, they're not so sure. When this is definitely right, yeah, yeah, they're they're they're, well, they're pushing back on it. They're great. saying, "Hold on a second, you're getting ahead of yourselves." You know. Otherwise, where would we be? You know, if we just kept thinking the same way throughout yeah. lifetimes, well, we would just be yeah. still in a cave somewhere, you know, but humans don't yeah. operate that way. We we actually keep moving. And that is actually um, what true progress is. Um, so this yeah. is, this is yeah. basically yeah. where... Actually... Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I have this little insight, I think, um, in relation to this. Um, so if you adopt what I believe to be the correct position, which is that we can only ever get closer to reality, closer to truth, that there's always out there an explanation better than the one that you have for the world, and that we are continually trying to create better explanations, which are then tested and, and uh, inevitably refuted by reality. If, if, if you adopt that idea, you can understand how easily that idea is perverted into a kind of relativism where there is no such thing as truth. Because, and, and it's a distinction worth dwelling on, because what I'm saying hmm. is there is such a thing as truth. Our explanations never quite capture it. So that sounds kind of like saying the explanations are false. And in a technical, philosophical way, I am saying that. 
every explanation that is ever generated about anything whatsoever will ultimately be replaced by a better one, meaning that it wasn't as true as the the later explanation. Mm-hmm. If you accept that, well, it's not a million miles away from this relativism where, oh, well, the truth is just up to you. And And what's been broken between the former view of the world and the latter view of the world is the idea that there is an underlying grounding in reality, that there is some, the, the world is like something or as something or is, is this way and not that way. You know, th- that's a part of my place. Um, but if you, if you just let that slip for a little while, you end up in this world of absolute relativism where it's all about your lived experience, your identity, your um, uh, position in the hierarchical hegemony and all these, the, the fruit salad of words that basically describes power relations. Wow, mind blown. And while that was happening, I was thinking about this. So what you're also describing is kind of like blockchain technology versus central banks. Because blockchain technology yes. basically <laughs> functions on the premises <laughs> that, that you'll keep trying to find what is the most accurate block and add that to the chain and reject all yeah. of the other ones so that you have the order of the transactions yeah the most accurate that you can find, but you can never find exactly what it was. So we'll accept the best one and then we'll keep adding to the block and then the chain keeps growing indefinitely and it's decentralized. So not one person is deciding. And on the other side, you have, well, the truth doesn't exist anyways, but here's the caveat. So we'll tell you what it is. And so that's where you have uh, fiat money, you have something that, that is um, given its value, that is decided how you know it will be distributed and controlled from one central place. Yeah, nice one. You have one. the state. You I have like the that. state, basically. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That's yeah. like yeah. uh, all I was thinking yeah, was yeah. blockchain as you were speaking. That's that's interesting. I. I, in fact, you've just sparked an idea in my mind, which is to take an epistemological approach to understanding blockchain. Um, I'm actually rather stunned that I haven't done that. It's a, it's a criminal shame. I'm going to have to um, have another <laughs> glass of wine to punish myself. Yeah. There, there you go. Self-flagellate and you'll be all right, just like all of the Covidians. Yeah, I'll be fine tomorrow morning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I won't put on a mask for 30 seconds, so that's that's just <laughs> too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kate, it's it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, I I think we're we are seeing we are at war. Yeah, there's a there's a war of humanity and agency against. A kind of bizarre mechanical utilitarian technocracy. That's the fight. Mm -hmm. And the technocracy has managed to enslave many also rands in the, in the intellectual endeavor, in the academy, in the corporation. That's what we're in. We're in a war. 
Yes. Yes. It will be described that way later, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think that um, mm -hmm. yeah, carry on. I'm just thinking about um, I was thinking about something that I would like to kind of bring up with you is that I've decided now on um, you know we've been doing some filming and driving around and doing long trips so uh, we decided now that in the car we'll be playing Lord of the Rings and listening to the audiobook just to get all of these little um, little bits and pieces that we can kind of look out in a different light because we are really living in these kinds of times again where um, people mm. are increasingly nihilistic but then you have these um, courageous people coming out of the woodworks and the innovators and the hobbits and the elves and the people who mm. are kind of coming together in fellowship and deciding to not back down against forces that are much greater than themselves. What a lovely idea. Have you read, have you read Bobby Kennedy's book? Yeah. He's not backing down. I have down. not read it. Yeah, that's a, that I tell you, go for it. Just read it. I, I, I mean, I thought I knew everything there was to know, you know, about the, the, the kind of backdrop to the emergence of these crazy militaristic ideas, the militaristic approaches to, to pandemics. I most certainly did not. You know, uh, what a Is wonderful that what he book. Talks about? And so nicely written. It's, it's really easy to read. Um, well, it's just one of the things, one of many. I mean, the story, uh, you know, the, the book is called The Real Lansley Fauci. Um, and uh, it tells a lot more than just the story of, the, of the, how the militarized approach to pandemics arose. It tells the whole story of the, the, the decay in the health of Americans uh, as a result of the actions of the FDA and their corruption by pharmaceutical companies and, you know, to a lesser extent, well, I don't know, to a lesser extent by the, the big big food, big agriculture. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a phenomenal read, really. I, I, I just, the, the thing to me about that book is I, I can imagine it's having appeal to like a really wide target market because it's so... It's so nicely written. There's not, there's not, and, and that's actually an illustration of somebody who understands what they're talking about. Because a, a, a person who's used to reading, I don't know, you know, Dostoyevsky and Karl Popper will have a, hmm. have, have an enjoyable time reading that book. And a person who's used to reading, um, Dan Brown and Wilbur Smith will have an enjoyable time reading that book. That's a nice a bridge to make. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's lovely. And speaking of Fauci on the last note, I would like to maybe, um, say we were looking at some, looking through some footage, sifting through some things and we come across always these great little bits and it was the trailer for the Fauci movie. And he just is portrayed as this hero and this martyr. And he has like all of these mobs of anti-vaxxers so-called who are just outside of his office and they have signs like no more lockdowns, you're killing people. And these are made to be the bad guys, you know? And then you have Fauci who's just sitting at his desk and he's like, ah, here we go, another day in the life. And he's just in this pristine environment and 
his phone rings and he's well dressed and he's well fed and you know he's well rested and he's well paid and he's got more power than most people can ever imagine and he's acting as a victim when you have people who have literally died as a result of the policies that he has um, um, he has identified as being good for the people. Mm. It's creepy. We're not going to end on that note, are we? I can't. I can't let Fauci be. Okay, we the can't final end there. We can't end there. No. His dark, fetid, creepy breath filtering over the end of the conversation doesn't feel right. Doesn't. No. Not going to happen. I, I was hoping to give you something dark because I'm sitting here in Canadian winter, you know, and you're here at the beginning of summer in South Africa. So I yeah. said, I'll give you a little piece of the dark and then maybe you can like spin that into something lighter. And then I think that the it, ending will the, be yours today on the speakeasy. <laughs> the, I, you know, I, I shook the dark a long time ago. Um, I used to be, yeah, as Winston Churchill used to put it, I, I used to be chased by the black dog. But uh, that, that mm. thankfully, left a long time ago. Um, and so I now go to the mountains and climb my mountains um, and don't have many, well, very rarely have any difficulty sleeping. And, uh, and I usually have to have, blame it on a different type of dog, like a barking one if I do battle with sleep, but, um, <laughs> my, I guess, I guess intrinsic to my, the reason for all of that is that there, there is, there is great meaning in struggles like the one we're engaged in. And we know that we're on, on the right side of history, even if we don't survive to see history play out. Um, and there's, we mustn't forget to ignore the great joy in the process. As I was talking about the open science meetings of Panda the other night, uh, a, a few minutes ago, um, the, the, those are in themselves things of immense value, things like that. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't get the darkness. Yeah. I don't get it anymore. Well, that's quite lovely. And maybe this is something, you know, that happens as, as life, you know, goes on and you experience different things. I mean, one thing that for me has provided that silver lining has been uh, the birth of our son, you know, and just, you know, having people have been asking me, what's it like to have had a baby during this time? And I'm just like, it's the best thing that's ever happened. You know, nothing has ever been better than that. And I can actually have joy uh, in every single day, despite some kind of apocalyptic things happening around us. I mean, it's not going to be the apocalypse. I do think that we're going to win. I don't think that yeah. because evil has no actual life force evil, you know, if we want to look at it that way, it's kind of like a negative, you know, it, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't bring anything. It just, it just sucks away energy, but it doesn't add anything. And so there will always be creatives. Oh, yeah. There will always be innovators. There will always be, um, forces of good are far, far more powerful, no matter how tiny they are. They will come, and they will, they will vanquish the dark. Hundred percent. What a good, what a good note to end on. <laughs>